0: Well, we can turn to the chapter we read, Isaiah 53, and we can read the last two lines of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's obviously um, a sense in which this is the climax of the prophecy. Um, The final statement, where it was all leading to. Why was all the suffering endured? Why did the servant, who this song is about, why did he go through all the um, distressing uh, circumstances that he faced when he was uh, despised and rejected, when he was oppressed and afflicted, when he suffered so much uh, that his face was more um, oppressed than any other human. Why did he go through all that? And I suppose different answers could be given to that question. But, uh, and a lot might depend on who we're asking the question of. If we are asked, we might say that he, he did it for the glory of God, and of course that would be correct. But um, what if we were to ask God the Father why he did it? What answer would he give? And since it is God the Father that's speaking here in this final section of the chapter, going down from verse 10 to verse uh, 12, uh, we could say that in these verses the Father is giving his opinion, his assessment, his um, desires for the outcome of the saviour's suffering and what he says will happen as a result of Isaiah 53 is that the servant will make intercession for the transgressor. Psalmist, almost a sense that's what it's all for, that he'll make intercession for the transgressors. Verse 12, as we saw previously, there's a reference to the the kingly office of Jesus, that he has been given the highest place, as it were, in heaven. It's all done in picture language, that he will, God, the Father, says there in verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and then... Having been given this portion, he will divide the spoil with the strong, that is those that he makes strong, in order to be capable of enjoying the spoil. I mean, the spoil that Jesus has to share All of them need spiritual power to enjoy. None of us, even the most advanced Christian, whoever he or she is, none of us can cope with any of the blessings of Christ in our own strength. And therefore he has to make us strong. if we are, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 if we are to know the love of Christ not in some theoretical sense but if we are to know it experientially as it used to be said if we are to know it that way Paul says we can't know it without being strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man and the peace of God. Well, how just what pictures does the Bible use of the peace of God? Isaiah says, Oh, that you had listened to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. Well, go out to the river and see how much control you have over it. We need to be strengthened in order just to have what you could call these common Christian blessings. And of course, these blessings themselves take strength with them. As we're told in Nehemiah, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the, the Savior He divides the spoil with the strong, with the ones that he makes strong, by the Holy Spirit. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So there's no real reason why we should not experience Jesus dividing the spoil, as Isaiah puts it here, with the strong. It's his mission. It's why he's been given this role, to just do this. And that's what he does as a king. And as he told his disciples, after he rose from the dead, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And If we had been standing there listening to that, we would have said to ourselves, we have never heard anything so ridiculous in our lives. How can these eleven men Go and make disciples throughout the world. Most of them didn't even know what the world looked like. They had never been out of Palestine. And of course, left to themselves, they wouldn't have done anything. But Jesus said, I am with you all the days, and therefore, He did it through them, the great King, and he's still doing it. The most active person in the world today was Jesus, and it's good for us to remind ourselves of that. But what else was he doing today? And one answer is given here makes intercession for the transgressors. And we know that when he was on the cross, uh, when he was numbered with the transgressors, he um, prayed for the criminals, for, sorry, for the soldiers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we know that that And prayer of intercession was answered because later on that day uh, these soldiers confessed that he was the Son of God and indeed on other occasions when he was numbered with the transgressors we're told he was praying for example at his baptism John's baptism was for transgressors and we're told that when Jesus Uh, we went forward to um, his turn we're told he was praying and we don't know what he was praying for and he may have been praying for the other people on the line who can tell but anyway he was praying for when he was numbered with the transgressors and as it says here in verse 12, he was numbered with them. But the verb in verse at the end of verse 12 makes intercession is in a future tense. It's what he's going to do in the not as a cross. Uh, important though it was that he made intercession for the soldiers and so on, that's not what's been referred to here. This is what he's going to do after the cross. He's going to make intercession for the transgressors. Now in this um, prophecy or this song, there's several um, mentions made of what he's going to do after his sufferings. And all of them, as we know, are very important. Because it's what he's doing at the moment. Uh, One of them is, in verse um, 15 of chapter 52, which is part of this song, Uh, we're told there that after his uh, sufferings, he will sprinkle many nations. And the word sprinkle there is to do with cleansing. So, after his sufferings, he's going to cleanse many nations. That's one thing he's going to do after his uh, suffering. Another thing he's going to do after his suffering is mentioned there in verse 11 of chapter 53. He's going to cause that many will be accounted righteous. In other words, they're going to be justified, made acceptable in God's sight. He's going to do that. And we've also thought that earlier, a few minutes ago, that what he's going to do after his sufferings is, once he's been exalted, he's going to divide the spoil with the strong. And... um, kind of, also another thing that's mentioned about him is after his sufferings, in verse 10 it says, he will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know, some people ask, who is the longest living man in the Bible? And how would we answer that question? The usual answer to that question is to say, Methuselah, who lived for 969 years. But up in heaven, there's a man been living there since about AD 30. And he lives up there in the power of an indestructible life. Jesus. I know about Elijah, of course, and Enoch. But there's a man in heaven who's living a different kind of life. And from him, comes all life. Spiritual that we enjoy. But these things that I've mentioned about him here, his sprinkling of the nations, his making sinners righteous, his sharing the spoil with his people, his accomplishing the will of the Lord. Do we think they're alongside his intercession, or do we think they are his intercession? These various things sprinkling nations, that's sanctification, making sinners righteous, that's justification. Sharing the spoil that's supplying the needs of his people. The growth of his kingdom as it spreads throughout the world. Are these the things that Jesus intercedes about? It is an interesting question because I don't know if you've ever said to someone isn't it wonderful that Jesus in heaven is praying for me? Because that's how we use the word intercession. Paul says he wants intercessions to be made for all men and by that he means pray for them. But when it comes to Jesus' intercession, does that refer to his prayers? Well, I will try and see what the answer to that is. The New Testament's got several verses that refer to his intercession. I'm just going to refer to a couple of them. There in Romans 8, verse 34, Paul asks this question, who is to condemn? Well, I suppose the answer to that question is, well, the devil might. Or in Paul's own context, the Jews might. But what's his answer to it? There in Romans 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Does that mean today you and I, if we're Christians, were mentioned individually in heaven? Along with the millions of other Christians. But anyway, Jesus, according to that verse from Romans 8, is constantly dealing with accusations. Who is to condemn? And the same idea is stressed in John. In first John chapter two and verses one and two. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why do Christians need an advocate with the Father? Well, the obvious Likely answer to that question is because somebody's accusing them. And the reason why they're getting accused is because they're guilty. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And Jesus doesn't, as an advocate, stand up and say, Oh, they're not guilty. He admits we're guilty. But then he, as John says, as has been our advocate, he's also the propitiation for our sin, The wrath bearer. That's what propitiation means. And he basically, what John is saying, that Jesus just says every time any of his people sin, which of course is Billions of times, if we add them all together. Every time that happens, there's an immediate um, thing going on in the courts of heaven. Paid. Penalties paid. You and I may sin. And it may take us a a couple of seconds to realize we've done it. But already, before these couple of seconds have passed, heaven has said paid. So that's good to know that he's our advocate representing us. And within the last, just put it this way, within the last 30 seconds, how many times has that had to be done in heaven? Well, there's not one perfect Christian in the world. And none of them today have done anything perfect. So as far as each one of them is concerned, there's been this constant, need of in the courts of heaven of someone saying paid and John tells us that Jesus is our advocate the book of Hebrews we're told there Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 about Jesus our intercessor And he says that he is, we have got the wrong verse written down here, but anyway, that's it. But then he says, he makes intercession forever. He ever liveth to make intercession forever. So, there's a certain sense in which he, that's what he does. For you and I, the real benefit we got today is that Jesus, in one way or another, was interceding for us. And I think it's amazing that he does that. Now there's an obvious difference between our intercession and his intercession. Even if we limit it to the possibility of prayer, and that is that up in heaven, Jesus never supplicates. Supplication just means to beg. And you and I, when we pray, If we're going to pray appropriately, we always beg. And Paul says that, doesn't he? Prayer, supplications, etc. But Jesus never supplicates. Jesus up in heaven never pleads. He doesn't beg. There's one big difference between the high priest of Israel and uh, Jesus, and the high priest of Israel on the great day of atonement, he went in to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people, and he just walked through and came out, and his action, he was pleading But he never sat down. He just walked through. There was a seat in the Holy of Holies. But he never sat in it. And that seat in the Holy of Holies was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a symbol of God's throne. And who would dare sit there? That if we go to the real thing, and not the events that happened inside the temple or the tabernacle, which were just symbolic of the real, if we go to the real thing, and when Jesus goes in, and he goes into God's presence after offering the sacrifice, and he goes right in, and where does he go? He goes to sit and he he doesn't sit if we take a picture of revelation chapter 4 and 5 he doesn't sit beside the elders and he goes and sits on the throne of god and he sits there as lord and he never pleads for anything he speaks as a king, he gets his t- whatever he desires. He knows he's going to get it before he even asks, and he doesn't have to supplicate. So we're not to think of Jesus pleading in heaven. He speaks with power divine power. So it's good to know that, isn't it? His life on earth, well, he interceded when he was down here, didn't he? He um, spent nights in prayer. We're told that several times about him and Sometimes we wonder what his prayers were like when he was on earth. And the writer to Hebrews tells us. He tells us in Hebrews chapter seven and verse um, verse five. Verse 25. that he prayed with strong crying and tears. Now, we like to think that refers to the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did pray with strong crying and tears. But that's not the only time he prayed with strong crying and tears. What did he do when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead? What were his prayers like on that occasion? Well, that's where we're told that he wept. And we're also told that he sighed as he prayed. And on that occasion, as we know, he was going to do an amazing miracle. And yet, as he prayed before he did that miracle, having said that he, the Father heard him always, we're told that he went. And that he groaned. So although he did have that experience at Gethsemane, it wasn't the only time. And even in situations where we might think it would be more that he would pray differently, such as when he raised Lazarus from the dead. His prayers were still marked by strong crying and tears. intercession. Prayers for Jesus. The least we can say about them all is that they were very energetic. And he we might suspect that, well, why did he have to pray at all before he raised Lazarus from the dead? But he prayed, and he prayed earnestly, and he prayed for with great energy as well. How do we think Jesus prayed for Peter? Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not, Did he just have a a one-liner in this list of prayers for the day? Or did he pray with real force? I know what's gonna happen to you, Peter. And of course, he could have just said to the, the devil, You're not getting them. But instead, he said to him, I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. John 17 is a marvelous prayer, isn't it? And sometimes we like to think it's a picture of what he's doing in heaven. But in John 17, he prays for three things. He prays for his own glorifying. Well, he doesn't need to pray for that anymore, does he? That has happened. And he also prays for the ones he has kept, the disciples that were with him. He doesn't have to pray for them anymore. They're now up in heaven. They've been there since they died. And the other group he prays for is those who believe in him through their word. But there in that prayer in John 17, he doesn't pray for all the other disciples that are in the world at that time. So it can't really be a picture of what he does in heaven. It's a prayer that covers what he should pray for at that moment. But as I said, it's not exactly like his intercession in heaven. So what can we say about his intercession in heaven? How is it described? It's described as he appears. He appears in God's presence. He appears there for us. It's his physical presence there in heaven. That's what his intercession requires. He is there. And he appears there and this particular point is disputed, he appears there with his wounds. The wounds in his hands and his side and his feet. And those who think that his, he still has his wounds, they, they, they say, that these wounds speak, speak powerfully. They're the visible evidence that he suffered on the cross. I was reading about that this afternoon. Do you know when the people started thinking that his wounds spoke in such a way started in the 5th century. Prior to that, there's apparently no mention made. And at the, the Reformation, both Calvin and Luther didn't believe that his wounds were visible in heaven. It takes a brave man to disagree with him. What do you think? Does God the Father today look at the wounds of Jesus? Is that the voice? The voice that says, forgive them. I think it does. Can't sit on the fence about everything. Does the wounds of Jesus speak on our behalf? There in Revelation chapter 5, as he makes his way to the throne, the lamb who's been slain, freshly slain is the literal meaning of it. And as he ascends the throne and the crowd, the heavenly hosts are standing watching him, what they say about him is that he's worthy because he was slain. And uh, it's obvious, isn't it? His wounds don't merely speak. His wounds shout. There's no higher voice in the universe. Our great intercessor, however he does it, but when his hands appear, The wounds are there, and how could someone with such wounds possibly be ignored? So he intercedes, and while it may very well be the case that he does ask for this or that, The real secret of his intercession is his presence. The man on the throne, the administrator of God's kingdom, both God and man, with his divine mind he understands everything in God's will, and all the multitude of aspects of every single situation that affects his church. He knows it all, continually. And there he is, the God-man, with his wounds sitting on the throne. And he's always heard. It's good to think about it. The sufferer highly exalted. And the most attractive sight in the whole of heaven is the wounds that he carries. And they guarantee that whatever he requests, that whatever secrets he and the Father share together, because they understand what the will of God is, He gets his heart's desire, and his intercession works. And there's never been a second when it hasn't worked. All the way down through the last 2,000 years, his constant presence there in heaven has guaranteed that God's will will be done on earth. That's his intercession. It's good to know what it is. But I think it's also good to ask why he does it. Why does Jesus do this? Day after day. Year after year. Century after century. Why does he do it? Well, here's Couple of answers. He's called to it by the Father. We sang about that in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. The next word is very important until. So he's called by the Father to sit at his right hand, and the Father says to him, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. And that's what he's doing. Even now up in heaven, he's called to it by God. And unlike you and me, he never forgets his calling for a single second. He's devoted to his role. He was devoted to his role down here when he was called to be the sufferer. And he's devoted to his role up there as the intercessor. That's one reason. God the Father called him. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. Second reason is because he loves his people. In the heart of Jesus at this moment, Whether we think of his divine love or his human love, in the heart of Jesus at this moment there's a reservoir without limits. Love so intense. He does it all. Whatever it involves and however he does it, from what we might regard from the mundane to the heights. He does it all because he loves. That's what he said to Saul of Tarsus, wasn't it? Why are you persecuting me, the ones I love? So Jesus loves me. It's true. He loves me as he sits on the throne. And works everything for our good. So he's called to the role and he loves his people and he actually enjoys it. That's the writer of Hebrews says. It was because of the joy that was set before him. What was set before him? It's because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Despising the shame. Well, the joy that was set before him, part of it anyway, was his exaltation to God's throne and his joy. I mean there's only one government in the universe that's marked by joy. And Jesus up there, he enjoys building his church. You know, he's never come across a useless stone that he wants to throw away. He just delights in placing it in. And each of us, if we're in this building, we've got our location in the stone in the temple. And nobody else can get it. It's our position, and Jesus, up in heaven, gives it to us. Part of his role up there as our intercessor. He enjoys it. And whenever we think of Jesus today, we are to think of him as having the joy that was set before him. And we're not to judge him up there by what things are down here. And he's earnest. 100%. He doesn't tire. He puts all his energy. He's given the spirit without measure. And he's just. Do you know this? I read this comment that somebody said, Stephen Charnock. <laughs> it's an amazing thing what he says about what the benefits from having Jesus on the throne as our intercessor. He says, pleasures flow with a full and perpetual torrent from the right hand of God by the mediation of Christ. Try and imagine that. Pleasures flow with a full and perpetual torrent. After I read that, I saw a waterfall will never look the same again. They flow with a full and perpetual torrent. But it's pleasures. Spiritual pleasure. Where are they flowing to? Well, some will go to the saints above, but a lot of it is coming down here. My joy I give to you, said Jesus. And he loves to share his pleasures. He said himself there in Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But who is he shares the pleasures with? He's not selfish. But from him comes his delight in his people. Zephaniah described God as rejoicing over them with singing. And Jesus, as we sang from Psalm 22, said, I will declare your name unto my people. And God is a fountain of joy and pleasures with a full and perpetual torrent are coming down. So today in heaven, I think this song is telling us that Jesus prays that the unrighteous will become righteous. And he prays that as he shares his spoil with his people, they will be increasingly satisfied with his bounty. And as he looks at his church, and as he considers what's going to happen to it in the future, he sprinkles the nations. And they keep on coming in. How many were converted today? Who can say But they were converted because we have an intercessor who's never refused. As we close, it's important to note that we only have one intercessor. We only need one intercessor Jesus now it's good for us to pray for one another but our prayers are nothing if Jesus doesn't own them something is not answered because a hundred people pray for it or a thousand people pray for it or even if a million people pray for it. We don't somehow rather put together more energy that somehow creates a deeper impression in heaven. It's good for us to pray. And when we do pray, it's a sign that the Savior's work in our hearts is, is taking place. But we're not to imagine that somehow we can twist his arm. He's the intercessor. He decides. He governs. He works. He does it all perfectly. Doesn't need any help from anyone. Although in his amazing grace, he uses his people. It's good to know that up in heaven he's active with all his capabilities and all his competence. Mm -hmm. He remembered us on the cross and he remembers us on the throne. Remembers us in each with the same intensity just a couple of things as we finish what did you do today when you sinned when you and I sinned today what was our first thought when we sinned Did we jump to these verses in 1st John that we have an advocate? If we didn't, why not? That's his role. Often I just sort of say, I'll never do that again, which is a waste of time. That usually lasts a few minutes. We have to think of Jesus. His work in heaven. When you and I sinned today, he was on that task immediately. And if we have been Christians for long enough, we should remember that immediately, that he knows when we sin. And immediately, he's our advocate. So when we sin, what do we think about? When we see the weakness of the church, what do we do? Start devising some kind of super plan? How do we know it's a super plan? Does Jesus not know the church is weak? Has he not got the power to deal with it? Is the Christ of Pentecost somehow no longer operating? Of course we're weak. But when was the church ever anything else? Our eyes are to be on him. On the Christ. Who's going to build his church. And you and I can't add anything to that church. It's good when Jesus adds. And it would be wonderful to see him stretching out his mighty hand. but it's his hand. And our prayers is the final thing. We talk about getting liberty, and maybe that's the case, but there may be somebody else who seats along from us and at that precise moment all they can do is groan which one is most effective up there or is one more effective than the other is Jesus is depended on we have an intercessor A marvelous intercessor, one who's never failed, who never will fail. However long time lasts, he will fulfill the will of God, and we should be glad that that's the case. Shall we pray?